Hi everyone, I'm Elizabeth Stein, founder and CEO of Purely Elizabeth, and this is Live Purely with Elizabeth, featuring candid conversations about how to thrive on your wellness journey. This week's guest is one of my favorites back on the podcast, Dr. Will Cole, a leading functional medicine expert who consults people around the globe, starting one of the first functional medicine telehealth centers in the world over a decade ago. Named one of the top 50 functional and integrative doctors in the nation, Dr. Will Cole provides a functional medicine approach for thyroid issues, autoimmune conditions, hormonal imbalances, digestive disorders, and brain problems. He's also the host of the popular The Art of Being Well podcast and the New York Times bestselling author of Intuitive Fasting, Ketotarian, The Inflammation Spectrum, and his brand new book, Gut Feelings, Healing the Shame-Fueled Relationship Between What You Eat and How You Feel. In this episode, we dive right into his latest book, Connecting the Relationship Between Our Mental Health and Our Physical Health. Dr. Will Cole shares the top offenders for poor gut health, how trauma and intergenerational trauma affect the gut, tips on how to heal the gut in order to heal the mind and body, some of his favorite ways to activate our parasympathetic system, and so much more. As always, it's such an honor and pleasure to connect and listen to Dr. Will Cole. Keep listening to learn more. If you haven't had the chance to try our grain-free granolas yet, head on over to Walmart to now find them in the gluten-free healthy living aisle and select Walmart locations. Our grain-free granolas have crunchy clusters of nuts, superfood seeds, and creamy nut butters, all baked with organic coconut oil and sweetened with coconut sugar. They are gluten-free, paleo, and keto certified. Use the link in the notes section to find Purely Elizabeth products at a Walmart store near you. Dr. Will Cole, one of my most favorite people. Welcome back to the podcast. It's such an honor to have you back on. Thank you so much for having me back. I feel it's very, it's not always that I, you know, people come back to podcasts and I feel like very honored. And I feel it's my now my competitive goal to be the (laughs) most returned guests of the podcast. Who's number one? Who do I have to beat? Jason and Colleen's episode just came out today and they were number three. So you're they just (laughs) I'll let them have it. Fair enough. Well, I, I did say in the beginning of theirs, I love that your new book and their book share similar themes and really bringing that conversation of mental health and our physical health into the forefront and into the conversation where it really has been lacking for so long. So thank you for the book, for creating such an amazing piece that is hopefully going to really set the stage and help people frame their thinking in a different way than they have in the past. Thank you. It's an an essential part of my work with our telehealth patients and it, which is just a matter of when, not if I wanted to have the conversation in book form and crafting a book takes time. And it's, it was, it was definitely been, it was a fun experience to really put it all together. And as a writer, I think, okay, a lot of my job with my patients is education and empowering and looking at labs and showing them how to, and empowering them how to get these labs looking better. But when you're writing a book, it's okay, you're not there as a clinician educating people in the same way. So how would you communicate these things 
and the science around it and if as if you weren't there. So it's really empowering the reader to take action on their health without you managing everything and monitoring everything. But that's always a fun process, but it's called gut feelings and it really is just so important because we have to deal with both the gut and the feeling side of things, the physiological stuff, i.e. gut health directly or you know other things physiologically going on. But just as much, if not more for many people, the feeling side is so profoundly important of how things like stress and trauma and something that I call, I talk about in the book uh, called shame inflammation. How does something like shame impact inflammation? Those are just as important. Like what we're feeding our head and our heart is just as important as what we're feeding our body. But it's not a lot more abstract and nebulous to say, well, how do you get rid of stress? How do you deal with unresolved trauma? But there's actually a lot of compelling research to show us how to do that. So that's what the book's about. Well, I can't wait to dive into all of those pieces. Before doing that, I'm curious to hear, like, certainly at the beginning of your practice, was this part of what you were realizing? Or is this something that like over the last couple of years has really come more into the forefront of connecting the dots and then you saying, hey, I want to write this as one of my next books? Yeah, it's always been a part of the clinic because it's always been a part of functional medicine. I mean, in our postdoctorate training at the Institute for Functional Medicine, mind-body practices are all, it's a part of our curriculum. So, uh, and even in my doctorate training, it's it was a part of my specific in um, integrative medicine uh, training there. So it, it it's always been a part of my training, but I would say this, me really diving deep into the autoimmune world over the past 13 years in telehealth, it's accelerated my learning of these things. So just having to be voracious researchers, researching these um, the research out of trauma around trauma and stress and how that impacts inflammation levels and the neuroamino-endocrine axis as a whole, like the intersection between the nervous system, the immune system, the endocrine system. And that research, a lot of that research is trickling uh, out over the past 13 years. So we know so much more now that we didn't know 13 years ago. So I think as more research is coming out, it's really just um, refining and expanding the tools within our toolbox clinically. Um, so it's grown. It's definitely grown. And I would say directly with the type of cases we see, we typically see the more complex cases uh, that require that, right? It's not going to cut it to just say, well, like take this supplement and like all the day, <laughs> right? It's like not going to be supplemented out of this. Supplements can be a part of the piece of the puzzle and they are for most people, but it's a confluence of variables and you have to deal with the feeling side of gut feelings to deal with these stubborn, whether they're autoimmune issues or metabolic issues or mental health issues or, or whatever, digestive problems. They all typically have a both and not either or approach. They require that. It's funny, my mom is in Italy right now and she sent me a picture from a mosaic from like 400 AD of this woman exercising and lifting weights. And it just got me thinking about how like it's incredible how much we've known forever these like basics of health that Hippocrates food is medicine and, you know, to exercise is helpful for our mind and body, etc. But now to have 
all of this research and whether it's the research on the parasympathetic system or the research that we have on our gut, I feel like it's just so much more powerful in going beyond our small little wellness bubble of people who want to understand it, but really being able to make it more approachable to a wider audience who now will be like, okay, here's the evidence. You know, meditation actually, there's scientific evidence behind it. It's not just like a woo-woo thing. Yeah, I agree with you. It gets more people behind it and it validates why we people in wellness have been talking about these things. And in many ways, it's just science catching up with our ancestors. Yeah. Yeah. Like we knew anecdotally, we knew as a culture what our ancestors just saw from saw from experimentation and anecdote anecdotally but now we have the mechanisms of action which are needed in many cases so we can like implement these things in bigger like from a public health standpoint or in medical systems i think this is good this is really good it's helping more people by getting the information out there and for the person that is the skeptic you're going to get them too by showing the mechanisms of action and evidence that's out there. But you know, the biggest evidence for a lot of these type of conversations, it's being your own end of one experiment. Like there's so much still that we don't have all the best formulated studies, but you can see things really be a needle mover for people. Um, So you have to use the best research that's available, but realize that Science is also about experimentation and people can take the best evidence we have access to and let's lean into it and practice and evolve it. And that's sort of the the science and art of, of wellness. I think people can get sometimes get so almost like deify science, quote unquote science, and use science to really substantiate anything that they want, right? People can prove any point basically with some study. So it's not overvaluing quote unquote science, but it's learning from it, being curious about it, and then live your life and see what works for your body. Was there anything in writing the book that was the most like super surprising for you or your biggest learning that you didn't think would necessarily be there going into it? two of them. I think the research around breath work, I've always was aware of, but I think really learning about it, but also practicing it more myself, because it's something that I put into patient protocols, but I never really did myself that much. And when you put that into patient protocols, do you leave it as a a wide open breath work opportunity? Or do you have a specific protocol that you like the best? We have different protocols. I mean, it could be anything from belly breathing as a way to support vagal tone, which is the vagus nerve for people that are new to this, but it's the largest cranial nerve in the body, but it's responsible for our parasympathetic resting, digesting, gut-brain axis. When people talk about regulated nervous systems, they are in effect, in, in, in part, talking about an overactive sympathetic, that fight or flight freeze state is like overactive and hypoactive is the parasympathetic. And part of that on a physiological level is a poor vagal tone as the researchers refer to it as, or a weak vagus vagus nerve. So breath work, like belly breathing and other types of breath work will help to do many things. One of them is to tone that vagus nerve. It's like vagus nerve. It's like the gym for your vagus nerve, where if we went to the gym once and said, well, the gym didn't work for me, doesn't cut it, right? We know, hey, no, we just have weak muscles and we just- You need more times on the Peloton. <laughs> Forgot you and I have Peloton yeah. fans. The, we need to show up 
and breath work and meditation, like they are exercises for a weak vagus nerve that we all suck at. That's why we need to do it. That's why it's called a practice. <laughs> Until we make the weak things our strong things, it's going to be weak. We have to be stay consistent. So I'd say the research around breath work, that specifically the holotropic breath work, which I was experimenting with myself in writing this book of how it was born out of psychedelic research and how we can endogenously kind of tap into these parts of our nervous system and our psyche to elicit very similar experiences as people have with psychedelics only endogenously with our breath. And we can kind of pace it as well, like through breathing, breathing through our nose can slow down the experience, breathing through our mouth can be the gas pedals to enhance the experience, to impart strengthen that vagus nerve, but also metabolize stored trauma in the body, which that was just trippy for a lack of better words there. It yeah. was very somatic. It was very visceral for me to experiment and see what it's like in writing the book. And then I would say the other area that was most surprising to me in, in researching the book was something that I knew about, but just really digging into the research more was so exponentially more exciting was the research around transgenerational or intergenerational trauma. So looking at what is in the scientific literature, and it sounds almost science fiction or fantasy, but it is an effect like very much rooted in the, the journals of how trauma and the experiences of our ancestors influences our health today. Yeah, this was like wild to wrap my head around. <laughs> It is wild, wild. And then it's like, okay, it's a lot to unpack there because then people are like, man, I'm screwed. Like I thought I just had to deal with my stuff, not to deal with great grandma's stuff too. But, you know, I think this, if anything, it should be a message of maybe a little bit more of grace on ourselves. Like, okay, some of us are handed heavy things. It's not just that you're broken. It's not that you're just weak or there's something like inherently wrong with you. And as trauma can be inherited, so can healing. And I see people break cycles of dysfunction and disorder and disease all the time, and not only for themselves, but they're for their families. And as I say in the book, like generations, they'll never get to see, they get to pass this lineage of breaking these ancestral chains in their life. So basically researchers looked at the Holocaust in Germany and Poland in the, the Ukrainian famine, man-made famine from Joseph Stalin in the early 20th century called the Holodomor, which he basically killed and starved millions of Ukrainian people. And also in Rwanda with the Hutu and the Tutsi tribes, that people that went through those very massive geopolitical like genocides and famines, they saw methylation changes in their body. They saw specific shifts in their biochemistry that impacted inflammation, impact their metabolism, impacting their mood. That that the same methylation gene variants were passed, epigenetic variants were passed on to their descendants, their kids, their grandkids, and beyond. Wow. We're just scratching the surface and understanding this, that our experiences of our grandparents are literally living in our cells, that it's impacting genetic expression. So that's powerful, but it's also we can give our body some grace and we have to know what we're dealing with to do something about it. And these are things people can overcome and heal from. Wow. So wild to think about, but it also really now sets the stage to, to dive into the connection between all of those, the feelings, the gut, and how they're all interconnected. So let's kind of dive into maybe just starting with setting the foundation for 
And I love how you kind of start the book with like all these statistics of where our health is today, because it's a pretty dismal landscape of where we are from mental health, where we are from chronic disease, and all of that really, truly being affected at the root from our gut in many of cases. So why has that changed? And like, what, what, what is the issue with where the gut has gone over the last several decades, in your opinion? Yeah, in my opinion, I think that you really look at the epidemic rise of autoimmune issues, gut health issues, and metabolic issues and brain health issues. When I show the statistics, people will say, well, it's just better diagnostics. It's just more people are being tested. That's part of it. But no one that's looking at the research is going to say it's entirely due to better diagnostics. That may be a part of it. But even in our lifetime, things are growing. Like it's been a very short period of time, things are changing. And it's multifactorial. It's not just one thing, but it's a confluence of factors that is in part like if you had to break it down to what researchers are calling it, so this isn't some random functional medicine doctor talking about it. This is people in the academic world calling it an evolutionary mismatch or an epigenetic genetic mismatch, that there's a chasm between our DNA, which largely hasn't changed in 10,000 years, and the world around us. That's a, a large part of it. Now, that's a macro concept. But on a micro concept, it's the foods we're eating or the foods we're not eating. It's environmental toxins. It's the disruption of the soil microbiome, which is intimately connected to our gut microbiome. It's collective unresolved trauma and in, uh, individual unresolved trauma. It's in our relationship with technology and this epidemic, uh, like loneliness epidemic, which social media and our phones are intimately connected to. It's all of that stuff that's coming to a head. It's that all of these confluence of epigenetic lifestyle, we make decisions in humanity and on a personal level, we are living out of alignment with how we evolved. So that's really what it's at and where these genetic predispositions have been there lying dormant for 10,000 years, but they're being triggered, they're being awoken, they're, they're showing themselves more than ever before in human history because of this evolutionary mismatch. So that's what what's at heart, at heart of it. And the gut's a central player to all of that stuff because the gut and brain are formed from the same fetal tissue when babies are growing in their mother's womb. The gut and brain are formed from that same tissue and they are linked for the rest of our life through what's known as the gut-brain axis. So it's when you're talking about the brain and I talked about the microbiome earlier, the trillions of bacteria in our gut, which are connected to the soil microbiome by the foods that we eat and many other, even the air that we breathe and the things we're using in our life, it's influencing the soil, the, the, the gut microbiome, which we co-evolved with, which in a way that's even giving ourselves too much credit, really. I mean, we are sophisticated hosts for the microbiome. We would not be here without it in many ways, because we need it to make neurotransmitters. We need it to have an immune system. We need it to convert hormones in the body. 20% of the thyroid hormone is converted in the gut in the presence of diverse, healthy microbiome. So there's just, we need it more than it needs us. All the trillions of bacteria in our gut and the foods we eat and all the other epigenetic factors that I talked about, and even like stress and trauma will influence 
the microbiome will influence what we need to live a long, healthy life. Since the beginning, Purely Elizabeth has been committed to the healing power of food. We believe there's a direct connection between the health of our farms and soil and the health of our food. That is why I'm so excited to announce our newest product launching. Our number one selling original ancient grain granola is now available in an 18 ounce value size made with regenerative organic certified coconut oil and coconut sugar. For those who are not familiar with regenerative agriculture, it focuses on improving soil health, which is known to help improve crop yields, biodiversity, carbon emissions, and water conservation. You can find our value size at your local Whole Foods market or on our website at purelyelizabeth.com. If you're interested in learning more about our sustainability journey and how it impacts the delicious food you enjoy, please visit purelyelizabeth.com journey. Enjoy. So, so many factors that are really affecting our gut. And I guess some of those are in our control. Some of those are somewhat in our control. Some of them are somewhat out of our control. So when you see patients, certainly, well, not certainly, you start with food, you start with their emotional states. Let's dive into a little bit of before we get to food, let's start with the emotional piece, because I think that that's one that we've more people have heard about food. We know a little bit more about that. But really, that connection between the mental health and how that's affecting our gut, I think, is so profound and pretty eye opening for a lot of people to hear. The gut and brain are formed from that same fetal tissue. So it starts there when babies are growing in their mother's womb. And the first round of the microbiome, if you're talking about the trillions of bacteria in our gut, is in heirloom. It is a, just like trauma can be inherited. Our microbiome is being inherited on a physiological level as well. Um, and the microbiome of our mom, which she got over her lifetime from her and then from her mom. So it really gets passed from mother to baby. Even babies, how babies are born, like if babies are born vaginally versus C-section, researchers show that there's different types of bacteria because of the uh, canal or the stomach. So that will influence initially the microbiome. And C-sections can be life-saving. So it's not a matter of saying one's, you know, better than not. Um, but I would say this, that I do think that the rise of scheduled C-sections based on convenience when it's not medically necessary I do feel like the research is pointing to the fact that a vaginal birth is a very integral, important component to the initial inoculation of our microbiome. Sometimes it can't be avoided. But if you had a choice, it's certainly better to go that way. Exactly. So if it's medically necessary, then get the C-section and it saves lives. So anyways, that we get we get the microbiome and then if the baby's breastfed or not, we'll determine the microbiome. It it, it starts very, very early. 95% of serotonin, our happy neurotransmitter, is made in the gut. Most people have heard that. 50% of dopamine is made in the gut. They work upon, these neurotransmitters don't pass through the blood-brain barrier. How they seem to be impacting our mood is through improving or supporting GI motility, GI movement. The metabolites that the microbes are producing or impacting these neurotransmitters and the crosstalk between 
the gut brain axis or the microbiome mood axis is another way of thinking about it. And they work upon that vagus nerve that I mentioned earlier, that largest cranial nerve in the body that's impacting that resting, digesting, hormone balance, grounded, regulated state. So it's profoundly important. A study recently that um, looked at bacteria-free mice. Now the caveat is they, <laughs> the ethics of these studies, I, I'm not getting into that, but that's, a, that's another story. <laughs> that's another story. But researchers look at mice because of the reproducibility and the fact that they can't get humans to be bacteria free and to live months and being studied like it is very much needed in the scientific community at this point for many different types of studies to then go on to other types of studies. So bacteria free mice were given the microbiome of people that had depression and anxiety. And what they found was the mice that were given that microbiome donor that basically a poop transplant of a human that had depression, anxiety, the mice became depressed and anxious. It impacted their tryptophan levels, which is an important part of serotonin production. It impacted that nervous system regulation. So that shows you how profound it is that the bacteria in our gut, which produce different metabolites, which then communicates to the brain through the vagus nerve, that is a significant part of how the gut influences the brain. Um, and also there's a whole inflammatory component to this too. Certain bacteria produce higher levels of what are called lipopolysaccharides or LPS, which are bacterial toxins. They're bacterial endotoxins, which are pro-inflammatory in higher levels. So people that have overgrowths of certain bacteria, opportunistic pathogenic bacteria, they are typically producing higher levels of these bacterial toxins, which upregulates inflammation levels in the body. So that's a whole other space of it that's connected to this conversation of the vagus nerve of what researchers refer to as the cytokine model of cognitive function. Cytokines are pro-inflammatory cells. So it's researchers looking at how does inflammation how does inflammation impact how our brain works? How does inflammation impact things like anxiety and depression and fatigue and ADHD and autism um, that both this is sort of the combination of variables that are at play here when you're talking about how the gut impacts the, the your mood. How does the microbiome impact your mood? So for something like, as, as one of your statistics in there, that one in five children have some sort of mental, emotional, behavioral disorder, is that something that you think about that, and it's kind of confusing because there's so many factors going into it, but that you're so to speak, born with it, which could be that you're born with a gut or that the other factors that have affected your gut at a young age are creating that. How, how do you think about that? Or how should we think about it? You know, that? and people ask me that a lot, like, well, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Like, I think that's where a good health history yeah. comes into play. If someone really wants to hypothesize about these things for them and their body, we can do the best of our ability through comprehensive health history, understanding your health journey from conception, really, to birth and beyond childhood. And we get very granular in initial consults. So we have, we talk about that. I say, well, how were you born? And then they don't know why I'm asking that. Were you born vaginally or C-section? What was your mom's life like when she was, you know, what were your parents' life? And then we talk about something like the ACE score. 
which is I talk about in the book, but it's adverse childhood events or experiences. We talk about it at, at every telehealth consult. Like what was there verbal abuse? Was there sexual abuse growing up? Was there physical abuse growing up? Was there neglect growing up? Was there just I mean, so many very heavy things that we talk about in those initial hour and a half when with somebody because that cumulatively over the course of our life will influence the microbiome. It influences methylation and influences this sort of neuroimmunoendocrine axis, microbiome neuroimmunoendocrine axis. So it's, it is a central part. So what came first, the chicken or the egg is an individual thing that's determined through a lot of like, what's your story? But for most people, in most cases, it really doesn't matter so much to have to have all the answers of like, well, what came first? Because whether it's like genetics or epigenetics or whatever, we all have genetic predispositions for things, all of us. And researchers, depending on who you're talking about and what study you're looking at, but it's about a, a third of the puzzle for most chronic health problems, a third of it's genetics. So it's anywhere between, I've seen statistics, like when you're looking at twin studies, a lot of uh, epigenetic genetic researchers are looking at twins because there's identical twins. So it's anywhere between 70, I think it's in the 60, 70 percentile, let's just say mid 60% to 91% of how long and how healthy someone lives is due not to genetics, but epigenetics. So it's it's the lifestyle things that, like you said, we at least have some agency over. The genetics plays a role for sure uh, in most cases, but it's what is triggering that genetic predisposition. So the old view that, you know, just because my mom and dad had it, or I, this is my lot in life, or it's just like, I'm just that way. I just have a low something or high something. It is not that simple. What's causing those deficiencies or imbalances in the first place, it's typically some inflammatory component, some dysregulation of the nervous system or the immune system or the endocrine system or a combination of those things. It's some underlying microbiome issue that's causing the deficiencies or excesses or the dysregulations in the first place. So we wield a lot of influence by the choices that we make. And the cliche in our space is that genetics loads the gun but epigenetics pulls the trigger and that's really what what's at play here and the good news is that we now know that there's so many ways and different aspects that we can use to heal no matter what the reason is right the healing modalities are all the same yes there's so many things especially when you look at the body because the body is interconnected and you know okay like it, depending on who you are and what study you look at, you know, it's going to vary in importance, like how big of a needle mover it will be for you will depend on the person. But if you're looking for the most bang for your buck of like, okay, what should I start with? If I don't yeah. have access to all the functional medicine labs, if I don't have access to knowing all the latest research or whatever, the latest wellness trends, what's the most effective tool within my toolbox? It's going to be focusing on your gut health because there's so many gut-centric components to all the things, like the common maladies that's plaguing the modernity. Let's start there when you say, okay, the healing modality is healing with your gut health. What does that look like? What does the food look like? What are some of your favorite ways to tap in and heal that gut? Well, I think if someone hasn't looked at what I call the inflammatory core for, I think we should start there. Gluten containing grains should be looked at when you're looking at gut health. And I have a very 
nuanced opinion on this. I don't, I think there's some people who can do fine with gluten. And is it the gluten, which is the protein that's in wheat and rye and barley and spelt, or is it what we've done to it? You know, I think yeah. it's, it's a, probably a bit of both. I think if you look at it through the lens of from an ancestral health perspective, humans were feasting on a famine food, basically. It was grain stored well. So when you had the age of farming, when that happened about 10,000 years ago, people would have grains in times when we needed it, but they would also properly prepare it. They'd soak things, they'd sprout things, and they had a diverse, they had more resilience. They were exposed to less things in their world as well. So now it's an overconsumption, not properly preparing it, and it's hybridization and what we're spraying on it, all of that stuff. So, but look for the sake of simplicity, looking at wheat and gluten containing grains. Number two would be industrial seed oils like vegetable oil, soybean oil, canola oil. Is it the oils or, or is it the overconsumption of it? I tend to think it's more of the overconsumption of it. I think the the polyunsaturated fatty acid ratio is just off. We're like very high in omega-6, not enough of omega-3s. So the omega-3, 6, and 9 ratio from a PUFA polyunsaturated fatty acid matters when it comes to a cell membrane standpoint. If we're made up of cells, the cell membrane health is important. That phospholipid membrane is important. And in part, not entirely, but in part, the omega fatty acid consumption matters there. What are your favorite oils? Well, if you're looking at PUFAs, like polyunsaturated fats, um, fish oil, like actually from fish, like people eating fatty fish, that's my favorite oil for them. Like getting sardines and anchovies and- I wish I liked sardines and anchovies and mackerel. I don't, I'll be honest with you, I don't like it either from a taste standpoint. I don't, yeah. So there's, I'm not talking from like a "Mm, yummy, this is my favorite food, but like purely clinical nutrition and like me, like some people love it. Some people love it and power, God bless you. But I, I don't love it. So like I will supplement some things that I'm like, eh, I know food is better than supplements. I know that, but I, uh, I I'm not gonna. You draw the line there. <laughs> I'll eat it occasionally, but I go for salmon. I, yeah. I like salmon, which also is a nice, great source of omega. So it's not an oil, but it's a fat source that also, beyond the oil, provides great, complete protein, which is vastly under consumed by most Americans, and vitamin A true vitamin A, which uh, retinol, which is great for regulating inflammation levels and uh, vitamin D, some, some levels of vitamin D and other fat soluble vitamin um, and astaxanthin and zeaxanthin. There's all these sort of phyto compounds that are in like pink fish, like something like salmon. So um, yeah, so I, I, the industrial seed oils. And then the third thing to people, people to think about is just the overconsumption of refined sugar. I, there's nothing wrong with some consumption of sugar, but it's just the overconsumption of it. And uh, fourth would be uh, conventional dairy. Some people do great with fermented A2 dairy. I do fine with A2 dairy. I do fine with grass-fed fermented dairies. Some people don't even do well with those. So there's a lot of bioindividuality with not just dairy, but all the things I just said. Some people have more tolerances and reactions and sensitivities to all of this stuff. So I don't 
mean to make any blanket statements on any of this stuff. If people looked at those, like the inflammatory core four and had less of those or got better for you versions of those, the human microbiome, the human gastrointestinal like gut health epidemic problem would be vastly improved. And if I add, had to add a plus one to that inflammatory core four, it would be alcohol, which, you know, I talk about it in the book, but it's, uh, it's not, not so your good. gut's friend. It's not your gut brain nervous. It's not your neuroamino-endocrine axis friend by no means. From an alcohol perspective, is that like if you have a one glass of wine a week, is that bad? Like what is the kind of cutoff on that? None? <laughs> yeah. The research is the healthiest amount of alcohol is zero. So that I just lost a lot of friends right there. The, the reality is them. <laughs> all the puritanical teetotalers are like, yes, I'm going <laughs> to share this with my family and shame them. <laughs> but the reality is this isn't from shame. This is just like you make the decision for yourself. This is about informed consent. But to have informed consent, you have to know <laughs> the risk factors. It's a neurotoxin. And I want people to make that educated for that that personal decision for themselves and determine what, how do they want to feel? How do they, what are the pros and cons? This isn't about restriction. This isn't about shaming people. Like the whole point of gut feelings is shifting that conversation away from like, okay, you can't do that or you shouldn't do that. Or it's a moral failure if you do that to one of using food and drinks as a medicine, but also a meditation. How do these things make you feel? Do they love you back or not? To eat and drink more mindfully and really shift your perspective to one from one of like um, restriction and I can't have that and rules and dieting dogma or whatever, anti-drinking dogma to, well, I love feeling great more than I thought I wanted that thing that dimmed my light or, you know, continuing to eat things that don't love you back. Like I say in the book, it's like staying in a toxic relationship and wondering why you're still miserable and avoiding foods that don't love you back or avoiding drinks that don't love you back is not restrictive. It's not boring. It's not lame. It's self-respect. So I think that's the paradigm shift. So there's no healthy amount of alcohol. I talk about it in the book, but look, if someone can have, I'm a pragmatist, I see patients for a living. So if someone's going to have low alcohol, because it's the least neurotoxins, low sugar, organic, biodynamic, regenerative wine, and they have it randomly, then have it. But you have to find your threshold. Like how is it, does it, is it impacting your digestion? Is it impacting your mood? Is it impacting your sleep? Is it impacting your metabolism? Is it impacting your skin? or not. You know, some people can have lower levels of these things and they don't notice any difference, right? They're fine with having it randomly and in small amounts. But I would say more often times than not, people are having it more than what their body likes, or they're using it to numb or deal with their background anxiety or to deal with stress. And they're not dealing with the unresolved emotional stuff that needs to be dealt with. I love how you talk about eating the foods that love you back and like really not feeling bad about a decision that you're making, whether to include or exclude that thing because of how it makes you feel. So how did you come up with your shame flammation term? <laughs> I love well, so, so much of my job is education, right? It's like, 
I consider myself just a teacher in that way, like a clinician, clinic, the clinicians are teachers. Yeah. And, um, I use labs as educational tools. So like, I think of myself as just like that teacher for my patients to learn about their body, to become body literate about their wellness literate and on a bio-individual level. So shame inflammation was just my made up word that I probably thought of just waking up one morning and talking to, to a patient about it. And I just use it in patient verbiage. And of course I had to put it in the book because it's such a central part of the book. So it's normally my best like educational things that, that I think work well for like clicking and having an aha moment for people happen waking me up in the middle of the night. <laughs> and I like have to, I like, Oh wow, that's a good way of, of saying that or on planes. I feel the same way on airplanes too. It's like my best thinking. You can't really get on your phone. Well, you can get on the Wi-Fi, but you can't get a phone call. Yeah, and I just write. I do a lot of writing on planes. I've written all four of my books and all hundreds of articles, thousands of articles on planes. And um, I have just enough crappy Wi-Fi to like pull up PubMed. <laughs> it's like, I'm not that. going surfing flippantly. Yeah. It's very intentional. And the pages take forever to load and you keep logging in and logging out of the Wi-Fi <laughs> some flights. You know, the fly I could totally feel it. Yeah. And it's like you just do what's necessary. It slows you down and you're more intentional with how you're looking. So shame inflammation probably came from a Delta flight, if I had to say something, or waking up in the middle of the night. Thank you, Delta. <laughs> Thank you, Delta. So on the topic of slowing down, what are some of your favorite ways to slow down, to activate your parasympathetic system and feel your best? Breath work is major. So I would look at that part of the book and be consistent with that to use the meet your body where it's at. It could be something simple like belly breathing or box breathing, which is like breathing in through your nose for four seconds, holding for four seconds, breathing out for four seconds, holding for four seconds, and then repeating that box of four, four, four. Um, or the holotropic and seeking out a local holotropic breath class and getting trained in this very low cost other than the training once you learn this stuff you can do it for yourself which i love how you said at the beginning like it is the practice because i think we can put a lot of pressure on ourselves to think a it's not easy getting breath work in it's feels like if you only have a small amount of time you want to work out or do something that has like that instant hey you know that you've checked the box and done this thing and sometimes you don't feel the benefit of breath work immediately so recognizing that it is a practice. It is a practice, yeah. And I feel like breath work in some ways is more visceral and somatic for a, a culture of weak vagal nerve tone, like which I'm amongst that too, which I'm toning my vagus nerve just as much as the next person. I feel like meditation, you can get more people that will tell you, oh, it's not, I'm, it's not for me or I'm not good at it or all these reasons, which is more of a reason to do it. But I feel like with breath work, it is a little bit more visceral and somatic where the modern Western mind can actually experience things more, where it, which will get them to buy in on it a bit more. It's unnatural maybe or uncomfortable, um, but that's why we want to do it too. Um, but they can start, I mean, especially with the holotropic breath work, I've seen people see massive changes in one time where they keep wanting to get come back for more. Not that they have to do it all the time per se. There's more 
I think everyday breathwork things that they can lean to on their own as well. Another one for me is getting out in nature. And I talk about the research of Shinrin Yoku in, uh, in the book of the research out of Japan and South Korea, which that Japanese phrase of Shinrin Yoku translates into English as forest bathing. It's taking nature in as a meditation or nature in as a medicine to somatically take it in with all of your senses sensorially with this with the smell of nature and the the sight of nature and the all of it to there use nature as a therapy it's nature therapy to calm stress hormones to regulate the microbiome there's a study i talk about in the book where kids that did a, a forest bathing class you know, what very walking slowly methodically not very long taking in nature in with all of your senses there they saw a shift in the kids microbiomes because they were breathing the microbiome of nature which was impacting their gut microbiome which influenced their mood so i mean that's powerful and completely free other than you know driving to to the the forest if you have to do that yeah these are free and low-cost things most of the stuff i talk about in the book on the mind body somatic side of things most of them are free or low cost emdr is one that i've seen work really well clinically with our patients paired with these other tools so i don't see emdr by itself per se even though it could be and it does stand on its own but i like it in conjunction with these more of these everyday things that you do on your own emdr you go with a therapist there's a lot of great emdr telehealth therapists that we work in conjunction with to work on clearing out the stored traumas. If people are new, they don't know about EMDR, it's eye movement desensitization reprocessing or reprogramming. It is using eye movement to clear out past traumas, really working on that vagus nerve again, nervous system regulation, retraining the nervous system in a way. It's amazing. All right, we're gonna move into some rapid fire Q and A. What are three things that bring you joy right now? Mm. Nature. Um, we moved deeper into the country. I lived in the country and then I moved deeper in the country. So it's nature, my family. No, this isn't in order. Not my kids are going to listen to this podcast. <laughs> like, what? We know they're number one. <laughs> so my kids, my wife, my kids and my wife, nature. And if I had to say this, it would be alone time. Not that I don't love people, but I like really do. I talk about in the book, Jomo. This isn't rapid fire. I'm sorry. But okay. it's the, the antithesis of FOMO culture is the joy of missing out. So I'm like, I'm like a missionary for Jomo lifestyle of just like unplugging, disconnecting to connect, having some stillness and quiet time to fill yourself up. So you could be the best dad, the best parent, the best mom, the best whoever, best human uh, f- that you can be. I'm totally aligned with that. How often do you feel like you need to have alone time? More than the average human being. I realize I'm like the other end of the spectrum because I'm like an Enneagram 5, which are like classically like can feel depleted. So I need it more than the average bear. But every weekend would be great if I had like an afternoon, but I don't always get that. It's rare. What's one thing right now in the wellness world that's kind of driving you crazy? Or like you wish people weren't like paying attention to? Well, what it is, is is really not exclusive to, to wellness, but it's the toxic tribalism. I really abhor it. I talk about it at length in the book. 
it breaks my heart. I mean, it's just like, ugh, like it's so horribly ugly. The like us versus them, the otherism, the keyboard warrior pontification. It is everybody has a horrible opinion and throwing daggers at things at people they don't even know. And they would never say it to your face. So that's not a wellness problem. That's a social media culture kindness problem. But it's within the wellness space, which is just so sad because it's the antithesis of wellness. We are we are breeding dysfunction and unwellness within conversations about wellness. How messed up is that? So um, that's my biggest problem with with wellness right now. Agreed. The best advice you've gotten in the past six months? Hmm. It, it was something that I deeply knew. Like I felt like, you know, it was like, you know, the like the best aha moments are things we already know, but someone said it in a way that was so artfully, succinctly said. I was at this conference and they said, may our ethics be graved in stone, but our opinions be engraved in sand. Mm. which I think is a beautiful way to kind of go off of what I just said earlier. Like people hold on to their opinions and put that opinions in stone and their ethics are in sand. It's the opposite of what should be. So I think that's the, the best advice, reminder, aha moment for me recently. I love that. Three products that you're currently loving other than Purely Elizabeth. I was going to say <laughs> peanut butter, chocolate, Purely Elizabeth. I love the cinnamon one as well. Is that out all the time or is that just a seasonal? Like the pumpkin no, it's cinnamon? out all the time. Okay. Product. Any product? Any product. Well, let's talk about it. One is, I'm just looking at what I have on my desk. Well, I saw you just posted about Element. So I actually wanted to ask you about your opinion on electrolytes. It's a huge tool. It's such a simple tool. Yeah. You made me actually go and finally order it yesterday because I saw you posted it. And all my telehealth patients will know, like I'm always talking about it because the sodium, potassium, magnesium ratio is really important, especially when you don't have processed foods. You're losing a lot of sodium when you're not having packaged processed foods so that, that you need sodium. But the solution isn't to go back to all the processed foods. <laughs> it's like, no, you need to find ways to replenish it. So yes use eat food that has some salt in it yes that's going to replenish some of it eat foods that has have potassium sodium magnesium yes but adding in additional sodium potassium magnesium especially if you're working out especially if you're going through some stressful time in your life or you're always stressed or if you're not sleeping well you're sweating more this is important so i'm a big fan of element and they come in different flavors that are good i i love different types of bone broth. I have one on my desk, which is the Fond Company. I have no financial connections to these people. I'm just, they're, I just, you toss me things I use. It's, it's Fond. And I, um, so I'd say Fond. And then I have Holy Radiance, which I formulated with Agent Natur. It's MSM. It's brand new. Everyone knows about Holy Main. Yeah. It's in the blue yeah. bag. It's like all the hot girl this is not me saying this is people on tiktok <laughs> that i've been it. told all the hot girls in la hashtag i'm not on I'm, I'm on tiktok but i don't look at tiktok and they uh, it's apparently a thing it's all over social air media. One. Yeah. yeah it's all over air one all that stuff so i did that with them and it's marine collagen and pearl which have been used in traditional chinese medicine for thousands of years so this is a sister product to holy main it's called holy radiance 
I'm so excited that it's out now. And it's MSM, which is a sulfur compound, which is great for skin and supporting methylation and phytoceramides, which are great for hydration, supporting skin health from the inside out. So it's a complementary. it's holy main and holy radiance. So I don't know if it was three. I probably, I said four, but you know, there you go. You get a bonus one. Love it. All right. And lastly, what do you wish more people knew about you? I I think (laughs) this is something frivolous. Normally when people meet me, they think, oh, you live in New York, you live in LA. And they don't know I live in Western Pennsylvania in the middle of nowhere. So I want more people to know I'm a Pennsylvanian and I actually live in Pennsylvania. And I would also, number two, that I still see patients full time. Normally people are like, oh, you still see patients? They they, they, they don't know. That's all I do. <laughs> I'll randomly, you know, I do a podcast and I randomly have a book come out, but that's not my day job. So I would say those are two things that every week. I'm telling someone, yes, I still see patients. I live in Pittsburgh. And then they say, why do you live in Pittsburgh? <laughs> and I'll give it up because I'm from Philly and my dad's from Pittsburgh. So we love PA. <laughs> Pennsylvania. You know who else is from Philadelphia? Who? So she wrote the foreword to Got Feelings, Nicola Perra, the holistic psychologist. She's from Philadelphia. Yeah. So cool. Pennsylvanians. We should, we should have a, uh, like a, a summit. Totally. Pennsylvanians. Revitalize in Pennsylvania. Yes, Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Well, we we need to get in. We need to talk to the governor of Pennsylvania. We'll do a board like a uh, tourism <laughs> campaign for PA. I'm all for it. Well, in closing, what's next for you? Uh, I'm excited to optimize systems at the telehealth center. It's, a, it's not sexy to everybody that's that's listening to this, but for me, I'm so excited about like just making care the best it can be, which is already great. I, mean, I really feel like we're unparalleled in telehealth. We've been doing it for 13 years, but you never stop refining. You never start optimize stop optimizing. If you are, you're getting complacent. So to me, it's always learning and hearing and listening to what people want and really educating and empowering and improving experiences. So that's what I'm the most excited about. Awesome. Dr. Will Cole, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Everyone, go get the book if you haven't already. And you can also go back and listen to the first episode that you were on. And now you're going to have to come on for a third so we can beat out Jason and Colleen. (laughs) I'm coming for you, (laughs) Wacobs. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for joining me on Live Purely with Elizabeth. I hope you feel inspired to thrive on your wellness journey. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review. You can follow us on Instagram at purely underscore Elizabeth to catch up on all the latest. See you next Wednesday on the podcast.